I want to begin this evening. Is this loud enough? It doesn't. Is it, it's, it, it needs to go up a little bit more. I think it kind of uh, popped last night. Eh? How how is it now? Does that sound better? Yeah, you can hear well. In the, okay, good. Thank you. So I want to begin this evening uh, first by um, really expressing my appreciation to uh, uh, Kitty Saro and Tanisara for inviting me to be part of this um, this field that's being created here uh, with them and their incredible transmission of devotion, your practice and all of your service. I've been so inspired by you over these years, and I'm just so delighted to be here and, and to be part of what's being created here in this retreat. And every retreat has a very different feel, and I can very much feel something special here with this quality of devotion and uh, transmission that's happening on this retreat. And I'm really, really grateful. I just wish it could have been under uh, better circumstances, as I know we all uh, miss Eugene and Pam very much and are holding them in our hearts. So I'm just very, very glad to be here and to be able to offer some teachings this evening to you. I would like to explore a little bit together the area around uh, a wise relationship to the conditions in our life. And I'm not particularly talking about our daily life because we have ample opportunity in every moment to explore our relationship to conditions that are arising since they are arising in every instant and every moment. And if we miss one moment, we have another opportunity to look at our relationship to what's happening. It's really, in some ways, so core to our practice to, uh, and to the Buddhist teachings to really look at this relationship, the way we come into relationship with ourselves, with others, with our lives. And here on retreat, we have the opportunity to look at what's happening not only in our meditation, but in everything that's happening here. That's one of the wonderful things about retreat experience is that it's not just about what happens when we sit down on the cushion. And there's so much that goes on through the day and we get so many opportunities to look at our own mind and our heart and our feelings in relationship to so many things that are going on here. Sometimes people have some of their greatest insights when they're doing their work meditation or walking meditation, or when they're just brushing their teeth, or, you know, lying down to go to to sleep at night. It doesn't matter what the conditions are. In every moment we have this opportunity when we are actually paying attention, when we are interested, as we were speaking about earlier, to see what's true, what's really going on, what's true here, in, in our own experience, in, in, in the way we are relating to our life and this manifestation of life. When I talk about life, I'm not talking about something external, something out there or something that we do or something that we're engaged in. It's, it's, it's this moment as it's arising, as we're experiencing it right now. This is life right now. And so we always have this opportunity. What's happening? And when I talk about relationship and why it's so core in the Buddhist teachings is because we, we essentially have these two primary movements of our mind. We move towards something, often in a grasping kind of way, or we move away from something in a kind of aversive or resistant kind of way. And we, have, we can be engaged in these movements of moving forward and trying to hold on or moving away and pushing away or resisting or not wanting. And this movement back and forth and back and forth. Sometimes I think this is what makes us so tired. Why we're so exhausted. It's just this, this movement. And it's a movement. We can actually experience our mind that way, moving 
moving towards things, moving away from things, wanting, not wanting, rejecting, grasping, liking, not liking. And then the whole control and manipulation that happens in that whole uh, uh, movement of our mind. I remember uh, there when I started getting very fascinated about this particular m- movement of mind, I wanted to just pay attention to this. This just this way my mind moved towards something that I liked and then I wanted to hold on or attach onto it and the way I wanted to move away and resist. Just that movement. And to see if there were times when I could actually experience the absence of that movement, which would be then kind of a quality of some stillness, of some quiet, of some peace, when, I, when my mind would finally settle down. But this persistent and relentless habit of this, which we actually can feel as movement, movement, and we feel like we're moving, like Tanisara was saying last night, this kind of toppling forward feeling, you know, just toppling forward, moving forward, and then moving back and moving forward, you know. I would get whiplash, you know, just kind of this whole movement of, of trying to get the things we want and moving away from the things we don't want. So we can see this whether we're in activity or whether we're actually just sitting here in stillness. Because our mind is moving around in the past, in the future. You can feel that kind of movement. It goes into the recent past, into the far past, into the near future, into the far future. It's like, whoa, you know, we really can have this very immense world that we are moving in. And kind of, in, and there's so much, so much feeling in it and impact from that on our, on our emotional life. And this is so much of what we, what we actually experience. And yet we keep pointing to and, and um, encouraging this possibility of stillness, of coming to uh, a still, a peaceful, calm, quiet place. And we know that as that starts to quiet down, as our mind starts to quiet down, we start to touch some of that calm or that peace, that tranquility that we so much long for, we so much want. And in looking at this, we start to have some understanding of what brings about that agitation, what brings about the, the, the irritation and the uh, restlessness in our, in our nervous system as we start to understand more and more the working of our mind and, and, and the patterns of our mind. We can see that conditions are always arising and changing and shifting and we can't do anything about that. That's the flow of life or the flow of experience. We, we want to try to control that or manipulate that, make it the way we want it, but we can't. Conditions just keep happening. But what we do see is we can, we seem to be able to have some uh, way of transforming our relationship to what's happening. And I'm thinking about last night because it was just so dramatic it was just so incredibly dramatic to be sitting here with Tanisara giving this beautiful uh, transmission of Dharma. We're all sitting here, you know, kind of in the stream of that, of that transmission and you know, just assuming that everything's just going to be going along a particular way. We usually do. And then crack, you know, this sudden very dramatic crack of everything changed. Of course, we didn't know what was happening in that moment. Lots of different uh, uh, ideas and assumptions. But it's so, it's so interesting in a way that, that's so uh, kind of a dramatic and obvious uh, example of how conditions can seem like they're moving along in a particular way. And then, bam, everything changes. Whatever that is, you know, sometimes it's very dramatic, sometimes not so dramatic at all. 
Because the truth is, this is happening all the time. We don't know what is going to happen in the next moment. We assume that things are flowing along in a particular way and will be a particular way. We assume that this retreat is going to end on, you know, Sunday and we'll all be kind of moving to our homes. Who knows? We don't know, you know? But we get into a flow, we get into a flow, and we want to see if we can stay awake enough to meet the conditions as they are, as we meet them, as we meet them. And last night, you know, I was, I was very aware how I, I, I didn't actually know what was going to happen. You know, everything changed. We all, all of a sudden were uh, pitched into darkness. There wasn't really any plan for that. And we were just sort of like, okay, now what? You know, and it was a very interesting kind of feeling just to be dropped into that unknowingness for a little while. You know, and then uh, we had our wonderful manager who started laying out some strategies and we sort of brought it together a little bit more. But we didn't know how long it was going to last. And then it it didn't actually last as long as we all would have liked, I think. (laughs) (laughs) I think we were all enjoying this kind of change and adventure and the mystery of it all because I was, uh, as I came up here at 9 o'clock to lead the next sitting in the dark with all the beautiful candles and there were lots of candles lit, um, the lights went on. And not only did the lights go on, they went on really bright <laughs> because that's where we left it, right? So the well, lights went on very bright and then there, there was a lot of groans out there, you know, just like, ah, you know, like little kids who just, you know, didn't get what they were hoping they would get tonight. So, you know, it's all this, it's this kind of adventure, but oftentimes we don't really hold this attitude of adventure even though the conditions in our life are constantly an adventure. Because when we really meet the present moment as it is, it is unknown, it is unknowing. We don't know what we are going to meet. A good example of this also is when we first come to a retreat, one of the things that we're usually meeting, and most of you know this who have some experience, are the, what we call the hindrances. We come into a retreat and then we hit up against these strong and difficult states of mind of the five, they're called five hindrances, for those of you who aren't aware of the list. The first one being the grasping mind, this, you know, the mind that wants things to happen a particular way. And we can see that in our meditation. We, no matter how long we've been practicing, there's still the preference. You know, we even may surprise ourselves how strong that preference is. I mean, we know better, right? We know not to have expectations and, you know, not to compare our retreats to the last retreat. And, you know, but yet, there it is. We have the, the grasping, we have the aversion, the sleepiness, the restlessness, and may give rise to some doubt about what's happening and did I really get anything in the last retreat and maybe I just haven't been sitting enough, you know, and all these kinds of doubts about our experience. And we know better, (laughs) but yet we can still see how we can get attached to our preferences in our sitting meditation and our experience here on retreat for the way we want it to be. My preferences for how I want my mind to be and my body and my, my spiritual experience to be. So we are met right away with that opportunity. The opportunity to see how these states of mind grab us, grip us, these patterns that are strong, these patterns that are habitual, that are sometimes still difficult to overcome. They really catch us off guard sometimes. 
So the, the Buddha speaks about these five difficult mind states uh, very clearly as something to be aware of, something to pay attention to, because we want to see these conditions of mind, these difficult states of mind also as arising conditions and passing conditions. They are impermanent. They are not solid. They are not m- so personal. The Buddha, one of the, one of the um, quotes that you hear in, when you read the discourses of the Buddha, one of the ones you read again and again, is when the Buddha says, Seen as it actually is, with proper wisdom, this is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. And it's very interesting to take that reflection and look at the way, you know, what's arising in our mind and our experience and how we take it so personally, like this is me and all the stories that we can build up about ourselves and about our practice and about the pro- progress of our practice or the progress of ourselves as spiritually developing people in the world and, you know, whether we're doing well or not so well or we think we're getting somewhere or we're not getting anywhere or, you know, I've never been a good meditator. I don't even know why I really come to these retreats and, you know, all these different kinds of ways we can characterize ourselves rather than seeing these are simply momentary arising conditions that have sometimes some, some life to them over a period of time might come into a sitting, might feel drowsy, really tired for that sitting, and I get up and there's like, I have all this energy. Or, or what happens oftentimes is that, you know, we're really, we may have a day, particularly in the beginning of retreat, where we're very, very tired. And then we go to sleep, we go to lie down, we go, I can't wait till I, you know, lie down at nine o'clock, I'm going to miss the the, the sit, sitting, I'm going to just go and lie down. And we lie down and we're wide awake. You know, have all this energy. It's like, what happened? I thought I was like so tired. I know you can relate to this. You know, how things change. Things change so quickly. So the Buddha says, it's not so personal. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. And when we look at that, we can start to reflect on then the question that this gentleman was asking today. It was like, well then, if that's not who I am, who, who am I? And who am I and where am I? <laughs> right? If I, if I don't know who I am, maybe I don't know where I am. I love that. You know, finding, trying to locate myself somewhere. We start to question this. We start to examine the ways we get identified with these changing conditions of our mind. And with the hindrances, these arising, these difficult states of mind, we can look at them as this changing landscape of our mind when we're not grasping, when we're not resisting, but we're allowing these to arise like sleepiness or restlessness, and then we are just applying the skillful antidotes or the skillful means to help, with, for example, with the sleepiness, bring about more energy. Because with sleepiness, all that really is happening is there's a loss of energy. There's a loss of energy. That's what happens when we go to sleep at night. We're tired and the energy drops and we it's a healthy thing and we, we let the energy drop and we drop into sleep if we can sleep well. In meditation, we're trying to raise that energy. We're trying to work with that energy. It's nothing, anything more than that. We're just trying to bring up the energy for our practice, for our investigation and for our insight on our path to liberation. It's not so personal, but we, we, make it, we can make it into so much more than that. That's just one example when we really allow our, when we allow the experience, when we're not rejecting it or grasping onto a different state of mind, then we can start to feel and experience that directly. What's it like? 
What's it like when I'm sleepy? What's my body feel like? What's my mind like? Or what am I like when I'm restless? What's that energy like? Or when there's a lot of grasping in the mind or there's a lot of aversion or judgment or rejection in the mind. What is that? How does it manifest? What does it look like? What do I do with it? How am I with it? What's my relationship to it? Because when it's, it'll be here for a while, but it's going to change. The energy will shift. And then while it's here, there's this opportunity to really examine and understand what is this? What is this? Without the resistance, without the grasping. Like Tunisara said last night, sleepiness is like this. Just like this. Okay, let me examine that. Let me see what that's like. As we start to feel even more subtly the experience, what we will begin to feel also is what the Buddha calls the second foundation of mindfulness, which we've begun to to speak about, which is called Vedna. Vedna in Pali. But it's all, what that means is it's the, it's the feeling tone of the experience. Is it pleasant or is it unpleasant? Or is it somewhere in between, sometimes called a kind of neutral feeling? And then we can start to feel more the bare quality of the experience, that it just has this kind of unpleasant tone. And if we can become more subtle enough to feel that unpleasantness, we may begin to see how we don't like it. We just don't like it. It's not pleasant. (laughs) It's It's not like it should be pleasant. It is unpleasant sensation is unpleasant. And we generally don't like it. It, It's just the way it is. It's just part of human nature. Again, it's not personal. It's not like we're supposed to like unpleasant sensation. (laughs) And when I started to really get that, when I started to understand that, it was really kind of fun just to feel how much I didn't like it when my body hurt or when I had an emotion that I didn't like, or, you know, when I had tension around fear or something, it's like, wow, this is unpleasant and I don't like it. And that's just how it is. Because there's such a tendency to want to somehow manipulate the experience so then that it's pleasant or that it feels good or that I come into some kind of comfort again. But that's not the nature of this life. And that was why the Buddha made this the second foundation of mindfulness. The first one, the body, being mindful of the body and the breath in the body and all our our whole relationship to that, the breath in the body. And the second foundation, the mindfulness of this tone, the feeling tone, of experience because that is reality. That's how it is. It's not like that we can change that. Sometimes experience is pleasant. Sometimes it's unpleasant. Sometimes it's in between. And life changes on that continuum. And then we, the Buddha says, look at your relationship to those sensations because that's what's going to give rise to the grasping, to the craving, wanting experience to be different, and the grasping onto experience. This is where the whole of this kind of this sense of a solid, fixated reality comes into view. As we hold on to things, we make things into things, when they're actually just this kind of more ephemeral, impermanent, and sometimes empty nature. But we get so invested, we get so involved. So, this, so how wonderful that we can bring our mindfulness to the subtlety, the subtlety of experience, and then begin to feel, oh yeah, this is just unpleasant. And as we do that, as we start to bring about a more uh, awareness and uh, interest to be able to stay present with that, we begin to develop this capacity and strength and tolerance to be able to be with more unpleasant experience without getting into a struggle 
without getting into resistance, without getting into a fight with reality. Somebody said, somebody said once, I, I, I'm not arguing with reality anymore. You know? Said, how, how wonderful, what a relief that I'm not arguing with reality anymore. You know, so, so it's kind of like that. We start to be able to s- settle in a little bit more, feel a little bit more. And it's a feeling. It's not just a letting go. We're not just recognizing something and letting it go. But it's uh, Tanisara and Kedisara have been talking about this receptivity of receiving experience, allowing experience. And that means into our body, into our uh, is our system, our muscles, our cells, our nervous system, which is then how we start to feel alive. We feel alive, but it means that we will also be feeling alive with the whole unpleasant aspect of experience as well. Because that means we're allowing life. We're allowing the full expression of life as it is. We're not arguing with reality in the same way. Very important part of our mindfulness practice. I wanted to... Um, we're so, sort of celebrating Ajahn Chah, these, uh, the, the, my teacher, not directly. I received the teachings of Ajahn Chah through Jack Cornfield, who was one of my main teachers. But they both received these beautiful teachings more directly. So I wanted to bring in a story of Ajahn Chah from um, Ajahn Amaro's book, um, who also was with Ajahn Chah. And this is a little story uh, where um, Ajahn Chah was meditating at night in the forests of Thailand whilst the sounds of a raucous activity from the nearby villages filled the air And Ajahn Chah often referred to another similar insight which arose on one such occasion, uh, on occasion. As in the previous story, he was endeavoring to practice meditation, but at this earlier time, he was becoming irritated with the noise. And so the story goes like this. Why does this Ajahn Chah's, this is Ajahn Chah's story, he's saying, this is what was going through his mind. Why do they waste their time doing unskillful things and make disturbance for everybody else in the bargain? Don't they know there's a monk out here in the woods trying to meditate and practice the Buddha's path? I go into the village every day for alms. They know I'm here. (laughs) They should know better than to be so insensitive. They're making a lot of bad karma, etc., etc., etc. So so he's really recognizing how irritated he is at the noise of the, the, the sounds of the village. And then suddenly... Amidst the flow of righteous indignation, he realized, ah, the sound is just a sound. It's only doing its duty as a sound. It has no intention to annoy me. Why should I go out and annoy it? If I leave it alone, what harm can it do to me? Upon this realization, his mind became very peaceful even though the sounds of the village festival were still there. It's very interesting. I've had, I had my own experience with the, with the sounds, and some of you may have heard the story when I was sitting a three-month retreat, and, you know, by it's six weeks in, seven weeks in, getting very, very quiet. My mind's getting quiet. It doesn't mean the conditions of aversion and grasping and restlessness and sleepiness are still arising at times. But generally, more and more samadhi, more concentration. And at that time, uh, one of the sewer uh, pipes went out, uh, blocked or something in there, was the need to bring in a digger right next to the meditation hall and dig into the ground to pull up this pipe and repair the pipe. And so probably for about three days, next to the meditation hall was this very loud digger, you know, digging and digging and pounding and and all this, you know. And I remember getting so irritated. It's like, don't they know we're in here meditating? (laughs) You know, it's similar, similar to Ajahn Chah. It's like this righteous indignation. It shouldn't be this way. 
And of course, I was really practicing the teachings of right, wise relationship and trying to come into a better relationship with the conditions that were arising. So I would really work with not reacting and not resisting and really being with um, that experience of resistance and not adding more resistance on top of the resistance and judgment and aversion to myself that I was so resistant. You know what I mean. You know, how it just gets, the whole thing gets so complex, layered upon layer upon layer. And as that started to fall away, and I was able to settle more into this, just the pure, bare experience of the sound, it shifted from being so irritatingly unpleasant, the same sound, the sound didn't change, to sounding like Tibetan bells. It was just like Tibetan bells. It was as, as if the whole universe had just turned into a deva realm, into a heaven realm, and somebody was just ringing bells. Same sound. And I think this is how it can be. You know, it's just this attitude or this perception, however we want to call it, where the situation may not even change, but something shifts. Something shifts inside where... We, f- we work with our reactivity, we work with the grasping, and then start to feel a sense of more equanimity and more peace, and then everything changes. Everything shifts. I wanted to share uh, another story. Um, uh, this story is from um, Mark Nepo, who is uh, someone who has, has shared a tremendous amount of his experiences. He's a cancer survivor, two kinds of cancer, uh, one a very rare form of uh, lymphoma. And um, he's written many books, very, very open about his experiences, working with people with life-threatening illnesses. And in one of his books, he, he told this story which I wanted to share with you because I think it's so poignant. Um, Sometimes the unpleasantness that we're talking about can be tolerable, but sometimes it's almost intolerable, right? Sometimes situations can arise or experiences can arise that we we really wonder, how can the heart bear this? How How can we really tolerate the truth of what's happening And he talks about his cancer here. He says, um, Hippocrates said that pleasure is the absence of pain. Anyone who has ever suffered knows this is a deep truth. When I fell into the gauntlet of tests that awaited after the pronouncement that I had cancer, I was terrified of being in pain. I introduced myself to every physician and nurse as Mark put me out Nepo. But with every procedure... There was some medical reason why I had to be awake. I came to realize that there was nowhere to run. Not how it is sometimes. There's nowhere to run. We can't, our strategies don't work anymore. And we have to be there for it. So he says, once I accepted this, which took some time, I understood that what was most terrifying about my pain was the prospect that it would never end that life would somehow freeze in whatever moment of discomfort I came upon. The terror gained its power from not being able to imagine life beyond the pain. That's so poignant because I think that's what happens is there's a, a, that, that freeze frame. Somehow the mind freezes in that story. In this case, that there is no life beyond this pain that he'll be in pain forever, that freeze frame. I think it's so easy to get stuck there if we can bring the mindfulness to it that brings more energy, more movement there so we're not so frozen in it, which is what happened for Mark. He said, the breakthrough moment for me came the day I had to have yet another bone marrow sampling. For some reason, these were the worst for me. But with the appearance that day of some deeper grace, I suddenly saw it differently. I recognized that this very uncomfortable procedure lasted at the most 
40 to 50 seconds. And I was arranging my entire life and being in anticipation and avoidance of those 50 seconds. Right? So seeing that the experience that froze in his mind as a picture, that kind of like a taking a photograph and that's it, right? My life's going to be like that. But then he saw the truth. He saw the reality, which is there was only 40 to 50 seconds of that unbearable intensity. And it changed. Then it changed. And it wasn't like that anymore. So that's kind of, I, I sometimes call it poking holes in reality. We poke holes in that solidified view we have of the way things are may not be the way we imagine it to be. But our mind, our mind is what makes it so fixated. He said, for the first time I realized I had a choice. The pain of those seconds would be the same, but I could ground myself, including my fear, in the very real fact that my life would resume after those 50 seconds. There would be light in the air once again after the pain. For the first time, I felt in my soul that I was larger than my pain. This empowered me. I was larger than my pain. And it's this, the way the mind takes these snapshots that make us feel so small, so narrow, so limited, like that's it. That's my life. But when we see it's actually not like that, just like using the hindrances, using these difficult mind states that come and go, that's not the whole of who you are. It's not the whole of your experience. We begin to open into a more spacious recognition of the truth, which includes this understanding of the changing nature of reality, this impermanent, this... Uh, insubstantial nature. We, where, where, where is the solidity? Where is that substance? Where is that that we take to be so real and so fixed? We start to look at what the source of that is, which is our own mind. One of the wonderful teachings of the Buddha, he said, we take what is impermanent to be permanent. And this is wrong view. This is wrong view. One of the the definitions of wrong view. So we turn that to wise view or right view. And we see that what is impermanent is not permanent. It's impermanent. Changing. So we might say that what we're attempting to do is to relax our tendency to fixate things. First we begin to understand how we're fixating through our grasping and our attaching to our preferences and then resisting this grasping and this resistant, they work together. Two sides of the same coin of the cause of our suffering, the cause of our pain. We start to see how that operates. And then we can, through our practice, we can begin to relax, soften a bit. Nisra talked about that this morning with our our uh, mindfulness of our, of our body and the sensations in the body and this this wonderful... A way of talking about the uh, one of the factors, the jhanic factors of of um, vichara, of adjusting, you know, adjusting, receiving and adjusting, making these adjustments. So that when we feel that there's some tension, whether it's mental, our mind is tight, the constriction, the contraction, or our our, our body or emotions, we're getting very caught by something, triggered by something how we can draw on these wonderful practices of breathing, softening, melting, opening, where we actually 
intentionally bring that to our experience. This has probably been one of the most transformative teachings in my life, is to know how to soften around the constriction. Whatever brings about that constriction, whether it's being triggered by something that's happening in the room with another person, whether it's something that my mind is creating about some imaginary future that isn't even real, hasn't even happened yet, which lately I've been saying, one way I've been uh, commenting on that to myself is I say, you're scaring yourself. You're just scaring yourself. There's nothing here. (laughs) There's nothing here. I just see my mind, you know, the way it wants to create these different scenarios, these different stories that just, I get scared. And then I go, I'm scaring myself. And then I just see there's nothing here. It's empty. I come back into the present moment and I just see everything is actually fine. I'm fine. I'm just going about my business. I'm cooking my meal or I'm sweeping the floor or I'm, you know, it's like everything's actually fine. So I've learned, I've learned, I just don't follow that thought. I don't follow that scenario. I don't go there. It makes me feel more contracted, more fearful, more vulnerable, more scared. I don't need to do that. This is life changing this is life transforming this is you know gives me my life back because otherwise i'm just lost in these imaginary scenarios that i am making up there's no reality there at all i'm just creating this myself and so seeing that more and more it just helps me i start to relax i start to soften i start to breathe i start to feel more of what's happening in my body let that identify those places of tension and constriction and really breathe into them, breathe into them, soften, melt, relax. This practice is so much about learning how to relax. Learning how to relax. And it's the relaxation that actually brings about happiness. When we're relaxed, we're happy. So we can actually teach ourselves, you know, work with ourselves to help ourselves relax. The teachings are pointing to something so different than I thought they were when I first started this practice. It's so much more simple. It's so simple. About breathing, I, you know, I thought the breathing, you know, we had to use the breath, you know, to get really concentrated and really, you know, strong samadhi and have these amazing, you know, jhanic experiences and all. And, you know, but it's, I think it's much more about really coming into a whole different quality of living, of being, which is also why I really love the title of this retreat, (laughs) Being. Being Dharma. Dharma is life, the nature, the way life is unfolding in a natural way, in the harmony, the harmony of things. Being that, not arguing, not resisting, not controlling, manipulating. And if we are not manipulating the manipulation or controlling the controlling or judging or being averse to the controlling or the layers and layers and layers. Is there, can we start, can we enter into one of those layers? Usually it has to do with the way we're judging ourselves or condemning ourselves or criticizing ourselves or getting down on ourselves. Can we just start there? Just start there to bring in a little bit more kindness, a little bit more of an attitude of loving kindness. This attitude of loving kindness, this care, this way of being so much more caring and respectful of the conditions that are rising in our mind and our body. Being so much more I love the word respect. Just so much more respectful of what's here. As we relax our tendency to fixate, 
we are practicing the attitude of loving-kindness. This relaxation of the fixation is what helps this opening and this softening, and as we open and soften, this is what brings in this quality of love. Love is what's waiting for us. Love is right there as the constriction starts to melt away. The love manifesting as a kind of light, a warmth, a radiance, a brilliance, connection, sense of wholeness, you know, this love, this love that is not separated from anything. As we start to relax the tendency towards fixation, making things, things so important. Things are important. Things are important. Of course they are. People, people we love, things that we love, uh, things that are uh, meaningful and valuable to us in our life. But how are we holding that? Again, what is our relationship to that? Are we holding on for dear life so much that our knuckles and our hands are turning red? We're getting rope burn, you know, trying to hold on so tight as the conditions fall through. So softening, softening our relationship to all of that. And then the love comes through. And this is really what I call this union of mindfulness and metta. The union of mindfulness and metta. They're not separate. They're not separate at all. Because the mindfulness is what brings the wisdom and the understanding and then we can start to soften and open and let go and the metta just naturally comes through. Just naturally. And then we open to the natural unfolding. We open to the Dharma. We open to the Dharma. We feel the Dharma. We experience the Dharma directly. Because that is what is. That is this. This everything is the Dharma. We come into a direct relationship, a direct experience of the moment, of the present moment, right here and now, just as it is. Without all of our imaginings about the past and the future, just right here and now, this reality, how is it right now? Right now for you as you're sitting here, just whatever your experience is as you're sitting here and listening or not listening, doesn't matter. But is there the mindfulness? Is there some attention to your experience as it is? And maybe there is even some resistance or maybe there's some not liking or preferences or whatever, but can they also be seen and not, be, and, and not add more resistance on top of that? And if that's there, can we not add more resistance on top of that? Again, we can see how all the layers come into play. So this union of mindfulness and metta this open-hearted attitude that says, I will allow this experience. I won't push anything away. I will allow this experience. I won't push anything away. The Dalai Lama calls this an attitude of inclusivity. This attitude of inclusivity, including all of experience as it is. Even all the difficult experience, we're not talking about some kind of specialized experience or idealized experience. We're talking about, I love how Kitty Sorrow often says, with that, you know, the painful knee or the, you know, the troubled mind or the, you know, the job you don't like or whatever it is, all of that. All of that, right here, this experience. We don't have to go anywhere at all. But we do forget. We do forget. We get caught in our reactions. We get caught in our strategies to avoid and to resist and push away. And then we wake up, hopefully. We wake up. Hopefully we can forgive ourselves for getting caught in all the difficult reactivity 
especially if we're hurting ourselves or another person, and begin again. Perhaps you know now that this practice is about beginning again. This moment, now this moment, that's a wonderful thing. We always have another chance. How benevolent this universe is. We're always given another opportunity. If we missed it, if we were unmindful for two months, we wake up. There's that moment, like Mark Nepo said, there's a moment of grace. We wake up. We can begin again. Let go of the past. Let go of that last moment. You don't even need to go there. Don't even think about the last moment. Begin again, right here and now. What's here? And what's my relationship to this moment? What's happening in this moment? Just keep hearing this. You know, I've been doing this for a long time. I just keep hearing the same thing. Begin again. So simple. Begin now. Begin now. So just end with this one poem from Dana Fald's short poem. Settle in the here and now. Reach down into the center where the world is not spinning and drink this holy peace. Feel relief flood into every cell. Nothing to do, nothing to be but what you already are. Nothing to be but what you already are. Nothing to receive but what flows effortlessly from the mystery into form. From the mystery into form. Nothing to run from or run towards. Just awareness, knowing itself as embodiment. Just awareness. Waking up to truth. Waking up to truth. Let's just sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for your attention. So it's just about 25 after 8, and so we have about half an hour.